0: wonderful evening to everyone. It is time to settle in, and tonight I'm going to be reading something rather apropos. When it comes to dreaminess, sleep, the beauty of the stars and the sky at night, many things that cross the mind when trying to quell the mind and prepare it for a healthy, long, and rejuvenating sleep. Tonight's book is a book which is now in the public domain, and it's called Witness of the Stars. The author is the Reverend Ethelbert W. Bullinger. It is a rather voluminous study of the scriptures when it comes to the constellations, which we'll get into here momentarily. I begin now with the preface from the book, Witness of the Stars. Some years ago, it was my privilege to enjoy the acquaintance of Miss Frances Rolston of Keswick, and to carry on a correspondence with her with respect to her work, Maseroth or The Constellations. She was the first to create an interest in this important subject. Since then, Dr. Seiss of Philadelphia has endeavored to popularize her work on the other side of the Atlantic and, Brief references have been made to the subject in such books as Moses and Geology by Dr. Kins and in Primeval Man. But it was felt for many reasons that it was desirable to make another effort to set forth in a more complete form. The witness of the stars to prophetic truth so necessary in these last days to the late miss rolleston however belongs the honor of collecting a mass of information bearing on this subject but published as it was chiefly in the form of notes unarranged and unindexed it was suited only for but was most valuable to the student she it was who performed the drudgery of collecting facts presenting by albamazer the arab astronomer to caliphs of grenada 1850 a.d and the tables drawn up by yulo Bey, the Tartar Prince, and astronomer about 1450 A.D., who gives the Arabian astronomy as it had come down from the earliest times. Modern astronomers have preserved, and still have in common use, the ancient names of over a hundred of the principal stars, which have been handed down, But now, these names are used merely as a convenience and without any reference to their significance. This work is an attempt to popularize this ancient information and to use it in the interests of truth. For the ancient astronomical facts and the names with their signification, I am, from the very nature of the case, indebted, of course, to all who have preserved, collected, and handed them down, but for their interpretation, I am alone responsible. It is for the readers to judge how far my conclusions are borne out by the evidence, and how far the foundation of our hopes of coming glory are strengthened by the prophecies which have been written in the stars of heaven as well as in the scriptures of truth. For the illustrations, I am greatly indebted to Jameson's Celestial Atlas, 1820, Familiarn's L'Etoile, Sir John W. Lubbock's Stars in Six Maps, 1883, and to the late Mr. Edward J. Cooper's Egyptian Scenery, 1820. For the general presentation and arrangement of the constellations, I am responsible, while for the drawings my thanks are due to my friend, Miss Amy Manson. It is the possession of that blessed hope of Christ's speedy return from heaven, which will give true interest in the great subject of this book. No one can dispute the antiquity of the signs of the zodiac or of the constellations. No one can question the accuracy Of the ancient star names which have come down to us, for they are still preserved in every good celestial atlas, and we hope that no one will be able to resist the cumulative evidence that, apart from God's grace in Christ, there is no hope for sinners now, and, apart from God's glory, as it will be manifest in the return of Christ from heaven, there is no hope for the church, no hope for Israel, no hope for the world, no hope for a groaning creation. In spite of all the vaunted promises of a religious world and of a worldly church, to remove the effects of the curse by a social gospel of sanitation we are more and more shut up to the prophecy of genesis chapter 3 verse 15 which we wait and long to see fulfilled in christ as our only hope this is beautifully expressed by the late dr william Lisk, and is there none before no perfect peace unbroken by the storms and cares of life until the time of waiting for him cease by his appearing to destroy the strife no none before do we not hear That through the flag of grace, by faithful messengers of God unfurled, all men be converted and the place of man's rebellion be a holy world? Yes, so we hear. Is it not true that to the church is given the holy honor of dispelling night and bringing back the human race to heaven by kindling everywhere the gospel light it is not true it is the hope that christ the lord will come in all the glory of his royal right redeemer and avenger taking home his saints and crushing the usurpers might This is the hope. May God of all grace accept and bless this effort to show forth his glory and use it to strengthen his people in waiting for his Son from heaven, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Ethelbert W. Bollinger August 31st, 1893 The Witness of the Stars For more than 2,500 years the world was without a written revelation from God. The question is, did God leave himself without a witness? the question is answered very positively by the written word that he did not in romans chapter 1 verse 19 it is declared that which may be known of god is manifest in them for god hath showed it unto them for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. But how was God known? How were his invisible things, his plans, his purposes, his counsels? known since the creation of the world. We are told by the Holy Spirit in Romans, verse 18, having stated in verse 17 that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word spoken things, sayings of God. He asks, But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily. And we may ask, how have they heard? The answer follows. Their sound well into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. What words? What instruction? Whose message? Whose teaching? there is only one answer, and that is the heavens. This is settled by the fact that the passage is quoted from Psalm 19, the first part of which is occupied with the revelation of God written in the heavens and the latter part with the revelation of God written in the Word. This is the simple explanation of this beautiful psalm. This is why its two subjects are brought together. It has often perplexed many why there should be that abrupt departure in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, covering the soul. The fact is, there is nothing abrupt in it, and it is no departure. It is simply the transition to the second of the two great revelations, which are thus placed in juxtaposition. The first is the revelation of the Creator in his works, while the second is in the revelation of the covenant, Jehovah, in his word. And it is noteworthy that while in the first half of Psalm 19, El is named only once in the latter half, Jehovah is named seven times, The last being threefold Jehovah, Rock, and Redeemer, concluding the psalm. Let us then turn to Psalm 19 and note first the structure of the psalm as a whole. In verses 1 through 4, the heavens, in verses four through six, in them, as in the sun. Verses seven through ten, the scriptures. Verses eleven through fourteen, in them, thy servant. In the key to the Psalms, it is pointed out that the terms employed in A and B are astronomical, while in A and B they are literary. Thus, the two parts are significantly connected and united. Ewald and others imagine that this psalm is made up of two fragments of separate psalms composed at different periods and brought together by a later editor but this is disproved not only by what has been said concerning the structure of the psalm as a whole and the interlacing of the astronomical and the literary terms in the two parts but it is also shown by more minute details. Each half consists of two portions which correspond the one to the other, A answering to A and B to B. Moreover, each half as well as each corresponding member, consists of the same number of lines. Those in the first half being by the Sejra, short, while those in the last half are long or double. If we confine ourselves to the first half of the psalm, A and B, verses 1 through 6, with which we are now alone concerned, we see a still more minute proof of divine order and perfection, the structure of A and B. The heavens, their testimony incessant, their words inaudible, their testimony Universal. The heavens. Here we have an introversion in which the extremes, C and C, are occupied with the heavens, while the means are occupied with their testimony. The following is the full expansion of the above, with original emendations which preserve the order of the Hebrew words and thus indicate the nature of the structure. Surely there is something more referred to here than a mere wonder excited by the works of the Creator. When we read the whole passage and mark its structure and note the words employed, we were emphatically told that the heavens contain a revelation from God. They prophecy. They show knowledge. They tell of God's glory and set forth his purposes and counsels it is a remarkable fact that it is in the book of Job, which is generally allowed to be the oldest book in the Bible, if not the world, that we have references to this stellar revelation. This would be at least 2,000 years before Christ. In that book, The signs of the zodiac and the names of several stars and constellations are mentioned as being ancient and well-known. We read, lift up your eyes on high and see who hath created these that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and for that he is strong in power, not one is lacking. We have the same evidence in a psalm, where the psalmist says, He telleth the number of the stars, he giveth them all their name. There is a distinct and divine declaration that the great Creator both numbered as well as named the stars of heaven. The question is, has he revealed any of those names? Have any of them been handed down to us? The answer is, is yes. And that in the Bible itself we have the names so ancient that their meaning is a little obscure. They occur in Job chapter 9, which maketh Arcturus, making reference to the bear, Orion and Pleiades and the chambers of the south. In Job chapter 31 and 32, canst thou bind the sweet influences or cluster of the Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? Canst thou bring forth Maseroth, in other words, the 12 signs in the season, or canst thou guide Arcturus with his sons, the bear with her train, the stars of heaven, and the constellations thereof, that being a reference from Isaiah chapter 13. And in Amos, verse 8, Seek him that maketh the seven stars, in other words, the Pleiades, and Orion. Then we have the term Mazaroth, from Job, chapter 32. And Mazaroth, in Second Kings, the former in both versions is referred to the 12 signs of the zodiac while the latter is rendered planets and in margin the 12 signs or constellations others are referred to by name the sign of gemini or the twins is given as the name of a ship in the book of Acts. The name of the ship is Castor and Pollux. Most commentators agree that the constellation of Draco or the dragon between the little and great bear is referred to In Job, where Job says, By his spirit he hath garnished the heavens, his hand hath formed the crooked serpent, or fleeing or gliding. This word garnished is peculiar. The RV puts in the margin beauty, in Psalms, it is rendered goodly. I have a goodly heritage. In Daniel, it is rendered, I thought it good to show, referring to the signs and wonders which God hath visited Nebuchadnezzar. It appears from this that God thought it good to show, by these signs written in the heavens, the wonders of his purposes and counsels, and it was by his Spirit that he made it known. It was his hand that coiled the crooked serpent among the stars of heaven. Thus we see that the scriptures are not silent as to the great antiquity of the signs and constellations. If we turn to history and tradition, which are at once met with the fact that the twelve signs are the same, Both as to the meaning of their names and as to their order, in all the ancient nation... In all the ancient nations of the world, the Chinese call the in and Egyptian records go back to more than 2000 years before Christ. Indeed, the zodiacs in the temples of Dendra and Esne in Egypt are doubtless copies of zodiacs still more ancient, which from internal evidence, Must be placed nearly 4000 BC when the summer solstice was in Leo. Josephus hands down to us what he gives as the traditions of his own nation, cooperated by reference to eight ancient Gentile authorities whose works are lost. He says that they are all assert that God gave the antediluvians such long life that they might perfect those things which they had invented in astronomy. Cassini commences his history of astronomy by saying, it is impossible to doubt that astronomy was invented from the beginning of the world. History, profane as well as sacred, testifies to this truth. Nuit, a French astronomer, infers that the Egyptian astronomy must have arisen in 5,400 B.C. Ancient Persian and Arabian traditions ascribe its invention to Adam, Seth, and Enoch. Josephus asserts that it originated in the family of Seth, and he says that the children of Seth, and especially Adam, Seth and Enoch, that their revelation might not be lost as the two coming judgments of water and fire made two pillars, one of brick, the other of stone, describing the whole of the predictions of the stars upon them, and in case the brick pillar should be destroyed by flood, The stone would preserve the revelation. This is what is doubtless meant by Genesis chapter 4. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven. The words, may reach, are in italics. There is nothing in the verse which relates to the height of this tower. It merely says, and his top with the heavens, i.e. with the pictures and the stars, just as we find them in the ancient temples of Dendra and Esna in Egypt. This tower, With its planisphere and pictures of the signs and constellations, was to be erected like those temples were afterwards, in order to preserve the revelation, Lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. This is corroborated. By Lieutenant General Chesney, well known for his learned researches and excavations among the ruins of Babylon, who, after describing his various discoveries, says, quote, About five miles southwest of Gila, the most remarkable of all ruins the burrs nimrond of the arabs rise to a height of 153 feet above the plain from a base covering a square of 400 feet or almost four acres it was constructed of kiln dried bricks in seven stages to correspond with the planets to which they were dedicated. The lowermost black, the color of Saturn, the next orange for Jupiter, the third red for Mars, and so on. These stages were surmounted by a lofty tower, on the summit of which we are told were the signs of the zodiac and other astronomical figures, thus having, as it should have been translated, a representation of the heavens instead of a top which reached unto heaven. This biblical evidence carries us at once right back the flood, or about 2,500 years before Christ. This tower, or temple, or both, was also called the seven spheres, according to some, and the seven lights, according to others. It is thus clear that the popular idea of this height and purpose must be abandoned and its astronomical reference to revelation must be admitted. The Tower was an attempt to preserve and hand down the anti traditions. Their sin was in keeping together instead of scattering themselves over the earth. Another important statement is made by Dr. Budge of the British Museum. He says, It must never be forgotten that the Babylonians were a nation of stargazers, and that they kept a body of men to do nothing else but report eclipses, appearances of the moon, sunspots, etc., etc., Astronomy, mixed with astrology, occupied a large number of tablets in the Babylonian libraries and in the book of Isaiah refers to this when he says to Babylon, Thou art wearied in the multitude of thy counsels. Let now thy astrologers The stargazers, the monthly prognosticators, stand up. The largest astrological work of the Babylonians contained 70 tablets and was compiled by the command of Sargon of Agade 3,800 years before Christ. It was called the Illumination of Bel. Their observations were made in towers called ziggurats. They built observatories in all the great cities and reports like the above, which Dr. Budge gives in full, were regularly sent to the king. They were able to calculate eclipses and had long lists of them. They found out, That the sun was spotted and they knew of comets. They were the inventors of the zodiac. There are fragments of two ancient Babylonian planispheres in the British Museum with figures and calculations inscribed upon them. The months were called after the signs of the zodiac we may form some idea of what this representation of the heavens was from the fifth creation tablet, now in the British Museum. Coming down to less ancient records, Eudoxus, an astronomer of Cydnus, wrote a work on astronomy, which he called Phenomena, Antigonus Nostus, king of Macedonia, requested poet Aratus to put the work of Eudoxus into a form of a poem, which he did about the year 270 BC. Aratus called his work Diosemia, the Divine Signs. He was a native of and it is interesting for us to note that this poem was known to and indeed must have been read by the Apostle Paul, for he quotes it in his address at Athens on Mars Hill. He says in the book of Acts, For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Several translations of this poem have been made, both by Cicero and others into Latin and, in recent times, into English by E. Post, J. Lamb, and others. Then... Aratus proceeds to describe and explain all the signs and constellations as the Greeks in his day understood, or rather misunderstood them, after their true meaning and testimony had been forgotten. Moreover, aratus describes them not as they were seen in his day, but as they were seen some 4,000 years before. The stars were not seen from Tarsus as he describes them, and he must therefore have written them from the ancient zodiac. For, notwithstanding that we speak of fixed stars, there is a constant though slow, change taking place among them. There is also another change taking place owing to the slow recession of the pole of the heavens, about 50 arcseconds in the year. So that while Alpha in the constellation of Draco was the polar star when the zodiac was first formed, the polar star is now Alpha in what is called Ursa Minor. This change alone carries us back at least 5,000 years. The same movement which has changed the relative position of these two stars has also caused the constellation of the Southern Cross to become invisible in northern latitudes. When the constellations were formed, the Southern Cross was visible in northern latitudes up to 40 degrees, and was included in their number. But, though known by tradition, it had not been seen in that latitude for some 20 centuries, until the Cape of Good Hope had been discovered. Then, it was seen again, the Southern Cross depicted by the Patriarchs. Here is another indisputable proof as to the antiquity of the formation of the Zodiac. Ptolemy, in 150 AD, transmits them from Hipparchus, 130 BC quote, as of unquestioned authority, unknown origin, and unsearchable antiquity, end quote. Sir William Drummond says that, quote, the traditions of the Chaldean astronomy seem the fragments of a mighty system fallen into ruins, end quote. The word zodiac itself is from the Greek word, which is not from the word that means to live, but from a primitive root through the Hebrew word sodi, which in Sanskrit means a way. Its entomology has no connection with living creatures but denotes a way, or step, and is used of the way, or path, in which the sun appears to move amongst the stars in the course of the year. To an observer on the earth, the whole firmament, together with the sun, appears to revolve in a circle once in 24 hours. But the time occupied by the stars in going around differs from the time occupied by the sun. This difference amounts to about one twelfth part of the whole circle in each month, so that when the circle of the heavens is divided up into 12 parts, the sun appears to move each month through one of them. This path, which the sun thus makes amongst the stars, is called the ecliptic. Each of these 12 parts, consisting each of about 30 degrees, is distinguished, not by numbers or by letters, but by pictures and names, and this, as we have seen, from the very earliest times. They are preserved to this present day in our almanacs, and we are taught their order in the familiar rhymes. Quote, the ram, the bull, the heavenly twins, and next the crab, the lion shines, the virgin and the scales, the scorpion, archer, and sea goat, the man that carries the water pot, and fish with glittering scales, These signs have always and everywhere been preserved in this order, and have begun with Aries. They have been known amongst all nations and in all ages, thus proving their common origin from one source." The figures themselves are perfectly arbitrary. There is nothing in the groups of stars to even suggest the figures. This is the first thing which is noticed by everyone who looks at the constellations. Take, for example, the sign of Virgo and look at the stars there is nothing whatsoever to suggest a human form. Still less is there anything to show whether that form is a man or a woman. And so with all the others. The picture, therefore, is the original and must have been drawn around or connected with certain stars, simply in order that it might be identified and associated with them, and that it might thus be remembered and handed down to posterity. There can be no doubt, as the learned Athorus of Mazaroth conclusively proves, that these signs were afterwards identified with the twelve sons of Jacob. Joseph sees the sun and the moon and eleven stars bowing down to him, he himself being the twelfth. The blessing of Jacob in the book of Genesis and the blessing of Moses in Deuteronomy both bear witness to the existence of these signs in their day. And it is more than probable that each of the twelve tribes bore one of them on its standard. We read in the book of Numbers, Every man of the children of Israel shall pitch by his own standard, with the ensign of their father's house. In other words, with the ensigns of their father's houses, this so-called standard was the degal on which the sign, Oth, was depicted. Hence, it was called the ensign, Ancient Jewish authorities declare that each tribe had one of the signs as its own, and it is highly probable, even from Scripture, that four of the tribes carried its sign, and that these four were placed at the four sides of the camp. If the lion were appropriated to Judah, then the other three would be thus fixed, and would be the same four that equally divide the zodiac at its four cardinal points. According to the book of Numbers, the camp was thus formed. If the reader compares the above with the blessings of Israel and Moses and compares the meanings and descriptions given below with those blessings, the connection will be clearly seen. Levi, for example, had no standard, and he needed none, for he kept the balance of the sanctuary and had the charge of that brazen altar on which the atoning blood outweighed the nation's sins the four great signs which thus marked the four sides of the camp and the four quarters of the zodiac are the same four which form the cherubim, the eagle, the scorpion's enemy, being substituted for the scorpion. The cherubim thus form a competuous expression of the hope of creation which, from the very first, has been bound up with the coming one who alone should cause its groanings to cease. But this brings us to the signs themselves and their interpretation. These pictures were designated to preserve, expound, and perpetuate the one first great promise and prophecy, of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that the hope for man all hope for creation was bound up in a coming Redeemer one who should be born of a woman who should first suffer and afterwards gloriously triumph one who should be first wounded by that great enemy who was the cause of all sin and sorrow and death but who should finally crush the head of quote, that old serpent the devil end quote these ancient star pictures reveal this coming one they set forth the sufferings of Christ, and the glory that should follow. Together, there are 48 of them, made up of 12 signs, each sign containing three constellations. These may be divided into three great books, each book containing four chapters or signs and each chapter containing three sections or constellations. Each book, like the four Gospels, sets forth its peculiar aspect of the coming one, beginning with the promise of his coming and ending with the destruction of the enemy. But where are we to begin to read this wondrous Heavenly scroll. A circle has proverbially neither beginning nor end. In what order, then, are we to consider these signs? In the heavens, they form a never ending circle. Where is the beginning and where is the end of the circle through which the sun is constantly moving? Where are we to break into this circle and say, this is the commencement? It is clear that unless we can determine this original starting point, we can never read this wondrous book right. As I have said, the popular beginning today is with Ares, the ram. But comparing this revelation with that which was afterwards written in the volume of the book, Virgo is the only point where we can intelligently begin, and Leo is the only point where we can logically conclude. Is not this what is spoken of? as the unknown and insoluble mystery, the riddle of the Sphinx. The word Sphinx is from a word which means to bind closely together. It was therefore designed to show where the two ends of the zodiac were to be joined together and where the great circle of the heavens begins and ends. The Sphinx is a figure with the head of a woman and the body of a lion. What is this but a never-ceasing monitor telling us to begin with Virgo and to end with Leo? In the Zodiac, In the temple of Esne in Egypt, a sphinx is actually placed between the signs of Virgo and Leo, as shown in the illustration on the preceding page. It's a tracing from the drawing of Signor Bossi, executed on the spot under the direction of the late Mr. Edward J. Cooper in 1820. Beginning then with Virgo, let us now spread out the contents of this heavenly volume so that the eye can take them in at a glance. Of course, we are greatly hindered in this in having to use the modern latin names which the constellations bear today some of these names are mistakes others are gross perversions of the truth as proved by the pictures themselves which are far more ancient and have come down to us from primitive times After the revelation came to be written down in the scriptures, there was not the same need for the preservation of the heavenly volume. And after the nations had lost the original meaning of the pictures, they invented a meaning out of the vain imagination of the thoughts of their hearts The Greek mythology is an interpretation of only some of the signs and constellations after their true meaning had been forgotten. It is popularly believed that Bible truth is an evolution from or development of the ancient religions of the world. but the fact is that they themselves are a corruption and perversion of the primitive truth. We will now give the contents of this heavenly volume of divine revelation and afterwards proceed to develop it, explain it in detail, and compare it with the same truth which was afterwards written down in the scriptures. We're going to wrap things up here tonight. This is the introduction of Bullinger's work, The Witness of the Stars. What a wonderful thing to think about as we're falling asleep, almost as if, We are all under the stars gazing up on a warm mat in the night air on a moonless night, watching the meteors go by from time to time. Maybe a wayward satellite zipping by, all very relaxing, but we will dig further into the wonderful Maseroth, the signs of the ancient times that tells the story of the Anointed One coming as our Redeemer. Have a wonderful sleep, and we'll see you very soon. Good night.